This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. So, welcome to this uh, episode of the Urban Political podcast.、Um, today, we're talking about、uh, Murray Bookchin's book, The Next Revolution, and its relevance to new municipalism, municipalism more generally, and left and urban politics. Uh, um, in historical and contemporary perspectives,、uh, we've few guests today. Three guests.、Uh, um, if you could briefly introduce yourselves、um, for our listeners, that would be great. Perhaps starting with you, Blair, moving on to Hillary, and then Kate. Sure. First, thanks、um, to Ross and Marcus for putting this together, and to Hillary and Kate for agreeing to be part of this panel. I'm really looking forward to it. It's a great conversation. So my name is Blair Taylor.、Uh, I'm the program director of the Institute for Social Ecology.、Uh, I live in Bremerton, Washington, about an hour west of Seattle, and I was the co-editor along with Debbie Bookchin of the book we're discussing today, "The Next Revolution." I think I'll leave it at that for now. Okay.、Uh, so my name is Hilary Wainwright. I'm based in the East End of London,、uh, and I come from the north of England.、Um, I am just thinking, what's relevant? I suppose. Most relevant is that I worked for the Greater London Council. That that was the government of London before Mrs. Thatcher abolished it in the early eighties. I've written quite a few books, and some of them are about feminism and democracy, and feminism and socialism. Some are about new kinds of trade unionism, and some are about municipal、um, socialism. And my latest one is called "A New Politics from the Left," which is. Particularly through the lens of of knowledge and the importance of practical and tacit and popular knowledge. I'm Kate Shabed. I'm originally from London, hence the accent. But I've been living in Barcelona for the last twelve years, and for the past five years, I've been a member of、uh, the municipalist platform Barcelona in Común, which is、uh, currently in the city government with Mayor Ada Colau. Okay, thanks, everyone.、Um, so to get us started today. Blair, would would you like to?、Um, could you give us a bit of background on Murray Bookchin's work generally?、Um, how you became too involved in 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 this project,、uh, uh, the Next Revolution,、uh, and why you think it's relevant, perhaps, to new municipalism politics more generally? Okay. Yeah, it's hard to condense Murray's、um, life and work since he was <laughs> spent a lifetime on the left, and he wrote twenty five books. Political theory, radical history, urbanism, ecology, philosophy, but essentially, you know, he was a he was a red diaper baby.、Um, grew up in the radical communist milieu of New York City in the Bronx. He was a young pioneer as a kid, like a street corner orator. Became a Trotskyist in the '30s, and then a labor organizer in the '40s, and then basically became quite disillusioned with the labor-oriented old left、uh, in the late '40s. He started exploring new traditions of utopianism, libertarian socialism. He was part of this group called Contemporary Issues in New York that was kind of clustered around a, a German emigrant named Josef Weber that were reading Frankfurt School critical theory, anarchist stuff, pacifist stuff, and really trying to come up with new、um, points of radicalism and conflict to kind of reorient a new kind of left. So he starts exploring, especially already in the early fifties, early mid fifties, ecology as a new source of radical energy. So, in 1952, he writes a short article called "The Problem of Chemicals and Food," and this really becomes kind of a launching-off point where he's trying to come up with a, a new、um, crisis dynamic that will, you know, create tensions with with capitalism. 
where capitalism is uh, destroying the environment. This creates a potentially trans-class um, revolutionary actor because as a, as a labor organizer, he saw rather than the workers becoming kind of the, the grave diggers of capitalism, he saw them becoming more and more inured to capitalism. So this, this prompted a real rethink on his part. So he's trying to articulate a new politics and then along comes the new left in the early 60s which you know, has a, critique, a very broad, expansive critique, not only of class exploitation, but of hierarchy, alienation, it emphasizes democracy and post-scarcity. So this is kind of a perfect audience for his attempts to articulate a new left politics. Um, at this time also, he, he publishes his first book-length work um, on ecology, Our Synthetic Environment in 1962, which is uh, six months before Rachel Carson's canonical Silent Spring that kind of kicks off the modern environmental movement. And then he writes a series of articles kind of directed the new left, one called Ecology and Revolutionary Thought in 1964, which is really one of the, the earliest articulations of a kind of left ecological politics. It's a pretty remarkable document for a variety of reasons, one of which is it predicts global warming um, in very concrete terms. Of course, he says it's going to happen 200 years in the future, and of course, we're, we're living it now. Um, but in any case, he's really trying to articulate a different kind of left politics with coordinates of democracy, ecology, prefiguration. And um, these are very heretical ideas at the time, even um, very unorthodox leftists like the situationists mock him. They call him the Smokey the Bear anarchist. And um, as SDS kind of evolves from talking about participatory democracy to Maoism, um, he writes a series of polemics, including one great one called Listen Marxist. That he's kind of, um, you know, polemicizing against the turn, the turn away from participatory democracy into kind of what he feels are kind of older, more outdated political ideologies that aren't suited to the moment uh, at hand. So these are collected in his book, Post-Scarcity Anarchism in 1971, which becomes kind of a classic rearticulation of, of anarchism that kind of, uh, you know, draws out this nascent critique of all forms of oppression and domination, ties it together in a lens of hierarchy and embeds it in a politics of direct democracy. Of course, those politics go more or less unheeded. He was there at the, the last SDS uh, uh, Congress in 1969, handing out copies of this polemic. Uh, but he would somewhat be vindicated, you know, 30 years later uh, with the rise of the ultra-globalization movements when these kind of prefigurative forms of decentralized, ecological, directly democratic pop, uh, politics become more hegemonic. Um, and this, of course, you know, there's a big gap there that leads us through the new social movements of the 70s and 80s. Uh, during this time, he really is focusing on articulating social ecology as a body of ideas. Um, the core insight of which is that the social, uh, the ecological problems must be understood as social problems, as emanating from the way our society is structured, namely one geared around domination, hierarchy, and exploitation. So uh, in 1980, he publishes his kind of magnum opus, The Ecology of Freedom, which is a sprawling counter-theorization to Marxist capital that says rather than you know, history being the history of class struggle, of course it, it's that, but it's also a history of other forms of domination, of racism, of sexism, of uh, statist elites, et cetera. So he tries to kind of outmarks Marx and you know, paint class struggle as one particular instance of a broader dynamic. Um, so this becomes kind of the basis for his um, work to come. Um, Important to this, of course, is he really enunciates this ecological critique of capitalism that understands it as a, a grow or die logic that will inevitably, you know, uh, basically put humanity out of business. Um, and that this also pr produces new radical subjectivities, a potentially trans class um, issue that we all have a stake in, potentially. He would later kind of back off from this. 
So he's involved in the new social movements in the 70s and 80s, the Clamshell Alliance, anti-nuclear movement, green movement. He founds the Institute for Social Ecology in 1974 with Dan Chodorkoff, which is a, a radical education center that combines, you know, radical theory, radical history with permaculture and hands-on agriculture, um, uh, solar energy, you know, things like this. Um, during this time, he also has a series of debates with deep ecology and other forms of kind of what he believes are anti-humanist or Malthusian understandings of ecology. And he's really ahead of the curve here and predicting the kind of eco-fascist wave that we're seeing now, which has also long been kind of a preoccupation of social ecology, warning that ecology is not inherently left or liberatory um, politics, that it has a history of right interpretations, especially in national socialism. Um, but even within the quote-unquote, you know, left or radical ecology movement, you saw people like Dave Foreman take racist anti-immigrant positions, anti-humanist positions that glorified HIV as thinning out the herd. So towards the end of his life, he's really kind of focused on debates within the anarchist movement. Um, this is like the late 80s, early 90s. He's articulating an updated social anarchism, and he's engaged in fierce debates with other anarchist tendencies, post-left or lifestyle anarchists that want to cleanse the ism of anarchy that they understand is kind of the legacy of the left. And they want a much more individualistic, spontaneous, anti-organizational form of anarchism. He's saying this is a terrible mistake. On the other hand, he's debating people like John Zerzan, the anarcho-primitivist, who think it's not just capitalism and the state that's the problem, but rather technology, um, quote-unquote civilization, whatever that means, and calls you know, for going back to a hunter-gatherer society. So these debates kind of build up, and he breaks finally um, with anarchism in 1999, the, the you know, tradition they've been working in for 40 or 50 years, ironically, at the exact moment where a, a vision of anarchism very close to his own, based on ecology, dark democracy, is coming to the fore in the ultra-globalization movement, at least in North America, which things like the Direct Action Network were founded by people that were students of his and very indebted to his ideas. So he breaks with anarchism and he starts developing the body of ideas he eventually calls communalism, which is he's attempting to synthesize the anarchist, Marxist, and radical democratic traditions, um, saying that, you know, basically Marxism has uh, had a too unproblematic relationship to the state and it leads to authoritarianism, whereas anarchism has been naive about power. The power exists and you must, you can only hold it in common. You must democratize it. So he's trying to um, dialectically synthesize these two, and he lands on what he had been calling since the 60s the forms of freedom, popular assemblies, this red thread that you can see throughout revolutionary history of um, self-managed uh, organs of radical democracy that have been at the heart of most revolutionary movements. So he's saying this is, this is what we should focus our energy on. Um, this could be a form that is neither the party nor the kind of spontaneous and ephemeral street mobilization. So he's articulating this. Um, he finally says, okay, you convinced me I'm not an anarchist. And then towards the end of his life, he really, um, he takes kind of a nostalgic turn. He, he works on a series of books called The Third Revolution, a four-volume set that's basically analyzing the, the Western revolutionary tradition and trying to cull out some lessons. And he writes a series of articles. One that comes to mind is The Left That Was. It's really, in some ways, a rapprochement with the old left. And I think he, towards the end of his life, kind of realized that um, there were some things in the left that he helped bury that were actually really important and valuable. The need for organization, um, a commitment to um, some broad, you know, universalist enlightenment values of reason. Um, so he really was kind of wistful. And the other thing that's also noticeable, I think, about his later works is he speaks very little about ecology in those days. He talks much more about capitalism and class struggle. 
So there seems to be, and he, he writes much more glowingly about Marx when in his earlier days, he was highly, highly critical. So this is happening. He's, he's in very poor health the last many years of his life. He also gets an interesting um, set of letters in the mail from some radicals uh, in Kurdistan who are saying, we've been reading your work and we're really inspired by you. Um, could we have a dialogue? And he says, essentially, I'm, I'm too ill to do this. I'm, I'm, that sounds great. I wish you the best. Of course, this was Abdullah Öcalan's, you know, uh, YPG PKK organization or somewhere along that transformation where essentially uh, this movement that had began as a fairly traditional Marxist-Leninist national liberation movement, when their leader Abdullah Öcalan was imprisoned, he started reading new people, Emmanuel Waterstein, Michel Foucault, and, and importantly, Murray Bookchin, and abandoned this idea that a people that is spread across Iran, Iraq, Syria, and uh, what am I forgetting? Iran, Iraq, Syria. Anyway, brain fart. Um, that they need their own state. What they, what they need instead is what they call democratic confederalism. They need decentralized forms of multi-ethnic and, and importantly, feminist rule. So, of course, this pops onto the popular um, consciousness in the wake of the, the Syrian civil war um, when Rojava and Kobani um, become the symbol of the fight against ISIS on the one hand and our strange erstwhile allies. Um, and yet at the same time, they're articulating this revolutionary new society in the middle of a war zone, which is, is quite an interesting irony, given that Bookchin was often both lauded and criticized as a utopian thinker. And the place where his ideas have received their, their fullest articulation is, in fact, a, quite a dystopian war zone. So it's a very unlikely case of intellectual political transference. So just to wrap up, um, he, he becomes an important um, point of reference for the kind of new municipalist politics, the right to the city movement. And in retrospect, we can see that he pioneered a bunch of positions that began as heretical ecology and non-reductive analysis of hierarchy and domination, directly democratic interpretation of anarchism, a focus on popular assemblies as counter institutions of dual power. And these have become, you know, increasingly, arguably, um, really central to the left. So these, the, the essays in The Next Revolution um, basically are kind of documenting and um, articulating the last 10, 15 years of his life when he's really making this transition from anarchism to communalism and really trying to articulate his ideas. Um, I, I got involved with the Institute in the wake of Seattle in 2000. I, I went out there. Uh, I studied for the next three summers. Um, and basically, it's become my kind of political and intellectual home since then. Um, and it's, it's provided this very unique space for, you know, movements to reflect and, and um, radical thinkers to think about praxis. And uh, I worked at Verso Books at the time. I knew Debbie from the ISE, and we wanted to put something out that would reach new audiences. Um, Bookchin's work had largely been kind of relegated to the anarchist and radical ecology movements. So um, that's how this came about, and it's been translated into nine or ten languages. And it's an attempt to give a general overview of his political philosophy how it differs from anarchism and Marxism, um, answers some common objections to direct democracy, um, and to hopefully make a contribution to um, this kind of pendulum of the state and the streets that movements so often fall into that might you know, offer some orientation to a more lasting and transformative politics. Thanks, Blair. That was, that was a really uh, wonderful uh, and uh, uh, concise, but uh, at the same time, uh, expansive, if that makes any sense, expansive overview of his uh, of his work. Kate, um, 
Would you like to to come in now and, and tell us your, about your own engagement with the book and perhaps how it relates to um, what's been going on in Barcelona and Spain and other places uh, 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 that have caught onto this label or, or generated this label of the new municipalism? Sure, thank you. Well, actually, Blair's mentioned the uh, Kurdistan uh, Bookchin connection, but actually there's also another connection, which is the Barcelona uh, Bookchin uh, connection because uh, Murray Bookchin was very inspired by the uh, Spanish anarcho-syndicalists uh, who were a real model of those forms of freedom uh, for him. So, um, I mean, actually, I have to confess two things. One is that I came to the book New Revolution after I'd already started doing municipalism. Uh, after we won the election in 2015, and um, the other thing is that although Barcelona in Comun, when it was launched in 2014, from the very beginning identified as a municipalist movement, I'm not sure if many or any of the founders had actually read Murray Bookchin. But I say that not in any way to, to disparage him, but actually to say that firstly, they had that same uh, local historical example that he was working from. But also that I think there's something about this kind of uh, assembly-based local uh, democracy model that is very human and very intuitive. This idea of, you know, leaving your house, going down to the square or wherever, talking to your neighbours, debating, you know, local issues, deciding what to do together in a democratic way. And actually, I'd say there's probably... Um, thousands of people around the world doing some kind of municipalism uh, without even knowing the term. Um, the other thing is that Barcelona in Comun, although we're municipalists, uh, what we're doing, we're not doing anything on the level of, of Kurdistan. Uh, we're probably doing some sort of proto-municipalism. Proto um, you know, we have representatives in City Hall. Uh, we're not using a kind of uh, delegate pure assembly-based model of, of decision-making, though we do do assemblies. Um, but I think that kind of dialogue that we're doing today between the theory and the practice is, is really useful. Um, so I guess, like, the reasons... When, when we decided to run for City Hall back in, in 2014, um, there was actually a debate in, in Barcelona about whether we should... Uh, stand for uh, the Spanish general elections or the local city council elections. Because after the 2008 financial crisis, there was a huge wave in Spain of, of social movements. Barcelona's always been a very radical, uh, active city. There was the PA housing movement, which was a kind of assembly-based uh, direct action movement to stop evictions. And all of these kind of networks of social movements in Barcelona and in other cities in Spain uh, were deciding how to harness this kind of popular power at the polls. And the reason I think that we kind of intuitively ended up at the same conclusion as, as Bookchin about the power of, of local uh, radical democracy was for a few reasons. One is uh, it's very accessible. Um, I think if you want to build a mass movement and actually win, everyone feels like they know and care about 
the neighborhood they live in, right? Even people who aren't traditionally what we'd think of as, as politicized people. Um, the other thing is that municipalism is very compatible with the political culture of, of social movements in the sense that the social movements, at least here, are very horizontal and assembly based. And they wanted to keep those practices and values going when they made the, the leap to electoral politics. And the other thing is, is the potential to do direct democracy or at least participatory democracy that the local scale uh, provides, which the national scale doesn't. And I think the other thing that brings people to municipalism is the fact that it's useful because it's, it's very action-oriented. It's very based on the tangible things around us, whether that be stopping evictions, providing affordable energy, food, or indeed winning elections, because we actually did manage to win the elections here, where, where the left in Spain, well, at least the radical left, hasn't, hasn't managed to do so over the, the last uh, election cycles. Um, but I do think that although people do come to municipalism without reading Bookchin, when I came to him after having started to do municipalism and I read Next Revolution, it was like a revelation. Uh, and I think it is really useful once you're doing it to have uh, this kind of uh, theoretical grounding and, and somebody to kind of paint the horizon of what might be possible over the longer term or the kind of um, the utopia that we're, we're working towards. So hopefully we can talk a bit more about that uh, today. I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. That, uh, that was great. Uh... Hillary, uh, what's uh, what, what's your take on uh, Butchin, and uh, uh, you know uh, how do you relate to some of the ideas in in, in the book, and uh, uh, is, is ideas more generally? I mean, this you know thinking of your work, you know, there's some uh, some perhaps some intersects sections there, as overlaps and parts where you uh, are obviously quite different. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you, how you might engage with them in terms of you, I suppose, in terms of your, your books, your written works, as well as, as the politics that you've actually practiced in terms of the GLC and activism. Yes. No, okay. So when, um, when Marcus asked me about this, I grasped the opportunity because I've been aware of Butchkin's work for a long time and kind of felt an affinity. You know, I've, I've dipped into it, but I've not studied it. And so I thought now, particularly with lockdown, is the chance to, study it but a um verso couldn't give me a copy of the book which i need because i d i find reading like a whole book on pdf isn't so good uh, and secondly i found that the whole experience of the pandemic it was so kind of i don't know distracting in a way sort of making sense of what the government was doing getting angry with what the government was doing and then then becoming interested in what alternatives, what forms of self-government people were um, developing in the absence of an adequate government. Anyway, so um, I haven't done the studying that I'd like to do. Obviously, I've, I've read um, parts of the PDF. And so I want to, you know, keep engaged with you all and, and continue this discussion. So my, um, my, my sort of feeling, my attraction to, to um, Bushkin is because He's tackling this question. Well, firstly, he takes popular democracy seriously and self-government and popular power. And I found that 
while um, at certain points, um, a lot of the left says, you know, is expressing enthusiasm for popular participation. It's kind of not very serious. It's like slightly superficial. It's like, you know, we support popular participation. But when it comes to thinking about it and building the institutions, in the end, the old structures are the sort of default. I mean, so recently with the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he his promise, I mean, meaning in the broad sense of what people hoped, is that, you know, a movement came around him that wasn't from within the Labour Party, but was from social movements. And so I really hope that now we'd have a, a complete sort of transformation of um, Labour politics in which the social movements were taken as the, the, the creative transformative force, which is my belief that, is, that, that they are. Um, but actually the problem was that, that although a lot of people would share that aspiration, the structures of the Labour Party were like a sort of, you know, they were already in existence. So it was quite an easy default for the sort of radical supporters of Corbyn to think, okay, we must take over these structures. It was like a sort of almost unconscious sort of direction of travel, rather than actually let's think about how we do develop uh, popular power. Let's work with our local tenants groups or, you know, our, um, or, or, or the organisations of precarious workers. I mean, some people did that. Um, you know, like there's a strong renters union, there's a lot of really good organisation of precarious workers that was definitely inspired by the Corbyn movement. But, you know, I just became aware of the sort of the power of existing institutions uh, to sort of draw people in and, you know, people have only got so much energy and so that kind of weight of the old and the and the exhausted and the, the kind of... Um, the institutions that are actually at a dead end, but they have a kind of weight, a residual weight that draws people in to put energy into taking them over. Um, so I felt that Butchkin kind of like really takes the question of building popular power seriously. And that's been my kind of preoccupation, maybe partly from the student movement. I was a 68er, so participation, Seawright Mills and so on were very much, you know, my what I found attractive, you know, as a sort of alternative to both the Soviet model of socialism and and to capitalism. And then the women's movement, I don't know how Butchkin relates to feminism. I mean, I think the issue isn't so much hierarchy, it's subordination, different forms of subordination and exercise of domination that are not, that can't be reduced to class. So I agree with Blair's idea of non-reducible. I wouldn't say non-reducible forms of hierarchy. I'd say non-reducible forms of, of subordination and oppression. And I'd also say that what we learned in, in the women's movement particularly, but also, you know, parts of the base of the trade union movement, is that the existing systems of power depend on our complicity. So transformation has got to be self-transformation and it's got to be not only a rejection a refusal to reproduce the existing institutions but then to to develop alternatives for which one needs movements and solidarity but then um, I suppose 
where maybe I diverge from Butchkin, or maybe it's just an area of like discussion because I don't have a very fixed position. I'm sort of, I feel I'm searching, you know, and experimenting uh, or observing experiments. Uh, but I suppose maybe it's because Britain's a very, has got this social democratic legacy. And in a way, people feel, many people feel a right to the kind of governmental sphere and to public resources. And so while not, while being quite disillusioned with the state, they also, uh, in a way, have an inclination to to kind of reclaim it. Um, so I got involved with Radical Shop Stewards, who developed a very rad, a very transformative, you know, alternative vision of production. But that was initially supported by a radical political represent, representative, Tony Benn, and that gave them confidence and and encouragement. Um, in the end, you know, the Labour government crushed it, as did management. But that then inspired many of us to 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 look to municipal government, where the balance of forces was more favourable, uh, and in particular in London. So in a way, we tried to replicate that idea of a partnership between popular movements, whether it's the women's movement, the radical trade union movement, community movements, and the emerging ecology movement. And um, you know, and and an elected state. And so, one of my questions is like, what are the conditions under which that um, that partnership can be empowering? So, I distinguish in my latest book two kinds of power. So, power as transformative capacity, which is the power you can see evident in social movements, and power as domination. And normally, they're 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 in conflict and power's domination, if that's seen as a as a strategy for social change, you know, ends up compromised and 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 not transformative at all, as we've seen with social democratic governments all over the the world. Um, but if but but power as domination, i.e. governmental power can be a resource for power as transformative capacity. And the question is under what conditions, you know, what makes that possible? And in the Greater London Council, this is what we tried to do with the popular planning unit. We we tried to use it as a a resource for popular struggles around, particularly around land and and around um, economic activity. So I probably better stop, but you know there are lots of lessons from that experience. So I feel that's an open question. You know, we can't uh, engage with the state as if it's some kind of answer but can we can we hack it as it were can we hack into it can we can we turn it into some kind of resource for transformative capacity which is where our real power and priority has to lie and also that's where i find the experience of barcelona very inspiring and and complicated there's so many things to pick up on i wondered if we could start um uh maybe coming back to you blair by looking at oh marcus is here as well um by uh returning to this I idea of uh butchins around libertarian municipalism and you know hillary was just talking about um there this idea of creating some kind of political project um 
you know, between formal politics and social politics, uh, the kind of the transformative power of social politics and doing that at, at the local and uh, municipal level. Could you start a bit by explaining the, the concept? Because it's, it's a concept that in some ways is quite utopian, uh, but it has very kind of practical aspects to it. Yeah, so that was um, really one of the, the key kind of threads in his political evolution that led him away from anarchism. And as I mentioned before, it was really there from his earliest writings in like the 60s when he was really talking about the forms of freedom. He was always interested in institutions. What are the institutions of a free society? It's not enough to just have ideas. And we've also obviously seen the, um, how tarnished the revolutionary tradition uh, was by the authoritarian experiment of, of the Soviet system. So he was always looking for something that, that put these two together. So um, I think actually uh, Kate and Hillary kind of provide two interesting um, orientation points because when when Murray started kind of developing his idea of libertarian municipalism, the idea is to build a dual power in tension with the state. But he, he kind of, at least at first, articulated two different avenues. One was kind of the extra parliamentary route where you basically call some kind of a popular assembly on your own that doesn't exist and you build that and that becomes kind of a new seat of legitimacy and, and uh, contrast to the state. And then later, and increasingly this became his main emphasis, was an electoral route where essentially you run candidates on the local level with the explicit aim of not only trying to, you know, uh, get through progressive content, but to change the very form of power, to devolve that power to popular assemblies. So this became kind of the, the, the governing um, idea of libertarian municipalism, of breaking down power changing our conception of politics as something that is done to us as passive objects by a professionalized class of politicians with their own interests set apart and against uh, that of uh, society at large um, to something we do together collectively, an empowering, an empowering act um, of, I, I think Hillary, um, I think Kate said something, something we do together to empower ourselves. So in this, he, he really returned back to this kind of classic Athenian model, despite all its limitations of being a slave society, patriarchal, et cetera. He was very aware of that. He thought there was something in this experience of direct democracy that the left had really um, overlooked. So, I mean, this also interestingly brought him into some conflict with other figures that would go on to national prominence, um, specifically Bernie Sanders. You know, he, he, they were both living in Burlington, Vermont at the same period. They're both, you know, radical Jews from New York City. Um, interesting factoid, actually, Debbie Bookchin, my co-editor, was, was Bernie Sanders' press secretary for four or five years. Um, so there's a long history of the two families. But, but um, Murray and his crew in Burlington were very, very critical of uh, Bernie's attempts to kind of, you know, enter into the halls of power at higher levels to change things because they saw... Basically, one, one example was an attempt to develop the uh, Burlington waterfront there, which left Greens opposed successfully, and which now, if you go there, is a really beautiful park, which Sanders was against at that time. And another example they often pointed to, the kind of the self-perpetuating realpolitik, that there's a local weapons manufacturer that makes Gatling guns there for warships, and Sanders consistently defended these as good, well-paying union jobs. So he was really insisting on the utopian of this. And it wasn't the utopian impulse here. And it wasn't just that he was some ideological anarchist, but this was also rooted in his analysis of history, that time after time, movements that entered into state power with the intention of, of changing the world are in fact changed by them. And 
he was in close dialogue with the German Green Party. Um, he was a close st uh, student of German social democracy. And then, of course, he'd seen the post-New Left groups, um, many of them enter into the halls of power. And um, so he wanted to really, he didn't want to reject that. He, he again, he was, he was criticized mercilessly by his anarchist colleagues um, for arguing for electoral strategy, but he wanted to not just try to legislate progressive content, but to change the very form. And that's what libertarian municipalism or, or communalism represents is a, a different way of thinking about politics. Kate, um, maybe you'd want, like to take up there on uh, this, this idea of municipalism and, and the local, you, you mentioned it already. Um, um, you know, obviously you're involved in like, practicing politics, you know, in this sense, and this, this kind of um, uh, inevitable uh, sort of compromise between between strategy and principles. So is this, what, what can you take from Bookchin's book uh, uh, that um, helps, helps with these kind of dilemmas? Well, I guess something that um, has caught my attention from what Blair said was, was the idea of um, avoiding the creation of a professional class of politicians you know, that, that's disconnected from, from ordinary people and becomes kind of institutionalized. And the main way that Bookchin wanted to deal with that was by having a system of, of delegation. So um, the idea that your representatives are just delegates and, and actually the decisions that are taken by the assembly and the, 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 the um, elected people just um, obey what the assembly says. I mean, in practice, um, although I agree with the, the goal, um, and actually we have some mechanisms to try and avoid that kind of um, political class um, problem, w one of which is term limits, because it's one thing being in City Hall for four years or eight years, and it's another be being in elected politics for 20 or 30 years. And the other thing <clears throat> is salary limits, because materially, at least in Spain, the official... Um, salaries of elected politicians are absolutely disconnected from ordinary people's salaries. Um, but the thing about the, the delegate system is that, I mean, I find it very utopian and kind of, I mean, practically very difficult to actually do because, especially if you're in government, because the idea of taking every single decision back to an assembly is kind of like how do you even have the material time to do that? Um, and so I guess my my question would be um, like how it, it's for me it's more like how which which decisions should be taken back to the assembly um, and which decisions can be left to a kind of broad mandate in which the individual decisions as long as they're following that broad mandate. Um, can be made by the people who get into power because I think there's an issue on the left which is that uh, we kind of there's a big concern about holding electeds to account which is obviously very important and we've seen many examples of why it's important but there's also this idea that when people take office or get into power that they're immediately corrupted or driven you know mad by power and actually at least at the beginning um, most of them are the same people they were before. They're just in a different situation with different limits. They're trying, you know, they're, and actually what they need from their 
assembly or their movement is support, not a kind of constant uh, kind of um, quest, quest for, to control every little thing they're doing. So, um, so yeah, I think that is a place where the theory kind of um, hits against reality, um, in my experience, at least. Hilary, that seems like a, a good opportunity to um, reflect on. Obviously, you've written about transforming the state and, and this kind of thing, but you, you were also involved, of course, in, in the GLC. And I know you, you, you talked about it a lot of times, but it seems like a good opportunity to explain a little bit about what happened when people like you and Dory Massey uh, became involved in uh, uh, the GLC and dealt with some of these, these, these issues of... Um, exercising power uh, from the left or trying to develop kind of popular forms of democracy uh, at community and kind of local city level? Yes, I can say something building a bit on um, what um, Kate said. I mean, I think for us, the key thing was to um, strengthen, you know, popular movements. In a way, it was like, for, for us, it was also like where are the decisions coming from. So, where is the the proposals? I mean, we were the the GLC. I wasn't a councillor. I was a, um, a, a an official. Well, a politically appointed official coordinating this popular planning unit. But the councillors um, and this radical bit of the Labour Party were elected on the basis of quite a detailed manifesto. But I think now this is a key thing. I think that that's where electoral democracy can play a role in sort of gaining um, societal or citywide legitimacy for a strategy. But then there's the question of implementation. And there it seems crucial to recognise that you cannot rely on the state, state institutions, that state institutions are um, either often embedded with, with corporate and private interests or in our case, they were actually very weak because the national government, Thatcher's government, had steadily eroded those powers. And so, for example, well, this meant actually that the GLC, the politicians, depended on the movements to implement their policies because, you know, the, the, the movements had a power which they lacked. So this happened around... Um, the question of land development, and obviously London has very high-value land, particularly inner-city land. So one classic example I can give to illustrate the point is that there was an area down near the river, very valuable, near the city too. And um, it was a residential area, you know, small businesses, in just a very, you know, a local neighbourhood. And... Um, then, uh, before the GLC, um, a big property developer put in a bid and was going to develop it as, a, as an, well, effectively a speculative office block. So a local campaign developed and um, some of the people who then became councillors were in this campaign. And it was a very powerful campaign in terms of uh, ideas and an imaginative alternative for developing the inner city community you know that won a lot of popular support and then several of the people involved decided well you know we 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 think we need support political support we need some resources we need some legislative support so they they became councillors they joined the 
the the radical Labour Party sort of slate of councillors. But when they were in there, they were in there not as delegates formally, but as you know, as champions of this struggle. So they weren't, you know, they were probably in regular contact, weekly contact, because that was their life. They they lived there, they 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 were rooted there. And so they would be they would be uh, coming back to the 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 assembly of this community, but the the decisions and the the um, demands and the ideas were coming from the assembly, from the local people, and so in a way, it wasn't about accountability. It was about responding to the demands and the power of the of the community, and I think that's a, a better way to see it. So it's not so much delegates; it's more. The, the emphasis is on supporting that power and then uh, taking decisions, which in a way are about enabling that power to be realised. So the key decision was to, to for the GLC to buy the land, you know, to, to use powers of compulsory purchase and then hand over the land to the, um, the trust set up by the, the community. So it was like a sort of collaboration rather than a, a delegate structure. It was like an active um, collaboration. Similarly, um, with the creation of nurseries um, by, led by the Women's Committee. Again, you know, the GLC didn't have the capacity to create nurseries, but there were masses of self-organised groups across the city. So the, the position of the GLC was to support those groups coming together, develop their plans, and then... Um, and then unleash resources from the GLC to support that popular power. But again, the the, the creativity, the decisions came from the, the assemblies around childcare and they were supported by the GLC. And it wasn't so much delegates, it was a collaborative relationship. I'm not quite sure how that would fit with um, Butchkin. I mean, in a way, it's taking the spirit of what he's saying, but looking at slightly different institutional forms so it's recognizing the need for institutions but but and recognizing that the the locus of transformative capacity lay with the movements but that the elected council had got resources that it could it could deploy in support of those movements but for that to happen required a, a collaborative relationship i think exactly uh, Bookchin was trying to navigate those two poles and to try to offer a vision of how you can avoid the problems of representation, avoid the problems of, you know, this common sense of betrayal um, on the part of social movements by politicians by changing not just the, the, the political content but the form. I would say that that, that you know somewhat um, agonistic relationship to quote unquote leaders is is the right one and a good one. Of course, they deserve support, but I think they also are under incredible pressure to conform to the dictates of states long, form, long molded to the imperatives of power, and especially capital in big cities. So they really need that. And that, to me, that's why also like this, seeing them as representatives or delegates or tribunes is, is problematic. They need to be, there need to be uh, institutionalized forms of accountability and communication. And that's, that's the point of assemblies is to, is to do that, to create a space where that, that happens. It's not just taking on faith. And we can point to a lot of, um, I mean, not great examples of that happening, but I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, we have Kashama Savant here in Seattle, who's a socialist city council person, and she's been great. 
on a whole host of issues. But you know, they basically come up with these platforms um, in their you know fairly sectarian groups, socialist alternative that very few people can even become a member of. In fact, I have comrades that try to get in, and they they're like, no, you have to go and read more Lenin, Marx, Mao, whatnot. So um, just changing the form as well as the content or the same thing. I mean, you could see similar um, impulses at work in the Sanders campaign. His, his slogan, he, could, he started right out of the gate saying, not me, us. And when he announced his, his most recent candidacy, he said, even if I am elected, I am hemmed in institutionally on all sides. I cannot do this on my own. Don't put all your faith in me. We need a mass movement to put pressure on all levers of society to make this happen. So that was a pretty startling um, recognition of the limitations of simply getting elected. And we, we have other historical examples from, you know, Mitterrand and France in 80s, uh, you know, pretty transformative socialist agenda and then massive capital flight. And then he becomes one of the handmaidens of neoliberalism. Same thing with the PT in Brazil. You know, it's, if you look across the globe, it was actually social democratic parties that in many cases were the good cop that were responsible for undermining um, uh, whatever vestiges of social democracy were there. So to me, um, just thinking of it in terms of like parties and representation uh, perpetuates that because there's just, it's not, it's not a personal failing. It's not these are bad people that sell out. They're, they're real institutional pressures. So unless we're thinking about changing those institutions, um, we'll usually be changed by them. And so I think some of this can be terminological. Um, Murray was very much against the idea of the state, which as I said before, he saw as this professionalized class above and against society. But um, when we start talking about confederalism and the relationship of administration versus policymaking, this was a core distinction for him. He thought the power needed to flow from the bottom up, that it should start, you know, in assemblies and that each each level as it kind of expanded in concentric circles, there needed to be strictly recallable and mandated. Um, he did use the term delegates, but that... Um, they, they were not, you know, the creation of a new, a new professionalized class and that movements needed to hold their feet to the fire on this score um, at all times. I, I, agree, I agree, though, that there are, there are complicated um, practical questions of what this looks like, especially in a neoliberal world where we're all working um, longer and harder and we have less time to ourselves. So, of course, this was embedded in a broader politics of an you know anti-capitalism attempting to build a post-scarcity society that we needed we need more time for politics um so to me that's also one of the important exciting elements of you know right to the city movements is using cities as kind of a, a popular stage to highlight the class interests at work of the states and uh of capital and we're, we're doing that in seattle with you know amazon this is transforming the city throwing people out and We've seen, you know, even before the current uprising against white supremacy, we've seen a series of movements and struggles that have really tried to spotlight just how much the state acts as the beacon of the 1% against the 99%. And what's really exciting right now with this uh, uprising against white supremacy that's happening nationally and indeed globally is that they're combining materialist demands rather than symbolic ones for, for example, to defund the police. They're deciding these things in terms of in popular assemblies, they're saying, okay, if we defund the police, what do we want to do with this money? Let's talk about it. And I was at the, the Capitol Hill organized protest or autonomous zone last week, and I sat in on one of these assemblies, and it was being moderated by a Duwamish tribal elder. There were Duwamish dancers, you know, kind of providing this amazing vibe. And here we're just having a conversation, the people that live in that neighborhood, what would we want to do um, with the money that hopefully will not go back to this um, empty police station that we're camped out in front of? Where would, where would these you know, millions of dollars go? 
And that to me is like a perfect example of the kind of communalist dual power that we want to create. If we look at contemporary societies um, characterized by a highly differentiated uh, social division of labor, um, fast changing, uh, fast knowledge transfers and so forth. So um, how can we think about instituting uh, a direct uh, democracy without overwhelming people? I mean, people need to have the capacities in, in movements to, to process Uh, the issues, the process, uh, the demands, and uh, to become involved. Um, so how, how, how does Murray Bookchin help us uh, thinking through this question of complexity and uh, overwhelmingness? I guess that's for me. Um, yeah, in fact, this is literally where chapter four of the book, The Meaning of Confederalism, starts. You basically says, few arguments have been used more effectively to challenge the case for face-to-face -face participatory democracy than the claim that we live in a complex society. And he goes, goes on. Um, <clears throat> he's, well, he, he has a couple different points he makes. On the one hand, he's trying to avoid the kind of argument for centralized nationalization, the kind of classic Marxian imaginary on the one hand. And on the other hand, he's also very, very aware of the limits of localism that can lead to a parochialism. So he's really trying to kind of navigate those through this, this concept of confederalism. And so one of the first points he makes is, yes, um, the world is very complex. One of those, one of those problems is, is the, the kind of false complexity and redundancy of capitalism. So this is bound up in the kind of anti-capitalist ethos. In fact, um, we probably don't need, I mean, we will need global supply chains, but we probably don't need them in the same way, in the same scale that we have them now, that we want to start to, you know, source more of these things locally, to produce things in a sustainable way. Um, there's so many inefficiencies that are basically made um, uh, imperative by capitalism. And to give one example, is, I don't know if anyone suffered through that terrible recent documentary, Planet of the Humans. It's really Malthusian garbage, but a lot of it is a screed against, it was financed by Michael Moore, so it had a lot of publicity. But it, um, it, it's basically a critique of um, renewable energy, and it's saying how it's like impossible to um, do this. It would require more and more mining. But the point is, actually, you can, you can reclaim a lot of the metals and the, the materials that you need. It's just inefficient to do so under capitalism. So this was kind of part of the, the, the logic of his critique that you get trapped in these um, you know, existing ways of thinking about things. Of course, there are real institutional barriers to doing that. So I think another thing is he, he definitely harkens back to the early Marx and this desire for a more well-rounded life. He's, he's definitely not saying we need to undo the division of labor, but I think he is saying um, that we want a, a more diverse, flexible life of, you know, hunting in the morning, poetry in the evening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we will sacrifice some specialization in form of generalization, but a lot of that is mandated again um, by capitalism. But I think important to this also is that not everyone needs to be an expert either, that you know, direct democracy sets the general parameters that are then carried out by, you know, delegates or administrators. So we're not all going to be making decisions on, you know, how the sewers run, but we want to make sure that they follow a broad set of, you know, ecological, democratic, humane um, values. Yes, I mean, it's, it's something I haven't really worked out, but it's responding to this challenge of how, um, 
how do the demands and the ideas of the of popular movements actually become realized within the uh, or, or get the support they need from the political system how do we avoid the the emergence of a separate political class or or the sort of absorption of those demands within the within the the local state and i mean i i'm just wondering whether actually delegation versus representation is the key issue for me the key issue is the power and autonomy of of the popular assembly and and the not just the assembly sorry i've got <clears throat> a dry throat not just the assembly but the forms of um material life that the assembly kind of brings together and that actually in terms of complexity <coughs> the assembly doesn't need to know i mean it needs transparency but it it doesn't you know the complexity of of um, a municipal government let's say this example of of london and the place near the thames it doesn't need to know all the the legal complexities of compulsory purchase it just needs to know that that's going to happen and so <clears throat> in a way it's a question of the power of the assembly and you know that power can be exercised not simply through making a delegate accountable but through taking action like so the in the, in the glc if the if the councillor who was involved in this campaign in the end compromised around the compulsory purchase um, action this campaign would have occupied the, the town hall you know so you i think one's got to see popular powers being primarily about a positive dimension not simply about um being the recipient of, of accountability kate uh did you want to come in there yeah, just two really simple ideas. I mean, I think the first thing is that partic participation and direct democracy doesn't mean that everyone participates in everything all the time. And I think Blair's already pointed to this, but actually it's about people having the opportunity to participate in the questions that interest and affect them. Uh, so that's one. And the other is that um, in order to buy that, idea and that strategy you have to profoundly believe in people's capacity to understand the world around them understand their own interests and also understand and take into account the collective in interest of the community around them and um i think that a lot of people on the left although they might buy the headline when it actually comes down to it they don't have a faith in ordinary people's capacity for self-government. And actually when they come across uh, people who aren't involved in radical left politics and they say things that, you know, they don't like, they suddenly get much more wary about participation. So um, it, you have to really have um, nerves of steel, you know, to go down this path. Yeah, I think that, that really um, links back to some of the things that Hillary was saying uh, earlier uh, in relation to the UK context and the Labour Party, uh, past and present. Um, thinking uh, more about this, um, so staying at the local or urban level, but uh, linking to the, uh, the 
this idea of transnationalism, uh, confederalism, and things like that. Uh, as obviously, as a, as a theory, it sounds quite utopian, and we don't necessarily have to go into all aspects of it. Um, but it's, it's obviously something that seems to be important now in the current context with uh, uh, fearless cities and this development of links between places, uh, between cities. And it's something that obviously is, is not new. There has been trans-municipalism uh, 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 in the past. Um, so I don't know, Blair, if you want to start perhaps with telling us a little bit about, about Butchin's ideas there and then maybe relating that to, to some of your, your own experiences. And then we can move on to uh, Kate and uh, Hillary again. Yeah, I mean, frankly, Bookchin didn't write too uh, extensively on the question of like international confederation. It was more of there as like a, a, a principle. And I, he often referred to, as you said, the history of the workers' movement being highly international. And that was, of course, before we had all these amazing tools. Um, of course, we also have the experience of things like the World Social Forum that were, you know, prefiguring some of these kind of. Um, global forms of democracy really i mean it's it's it is i think um we don't have a lot to work with and i think that's that's really unfortunate and it's it strikes me as very strange that again compared to the workers movement of 150 years ago i think movements today despite all these tools are are less connected in some ways than they they were in the past and i think that's a a real limitation um so that's i think that's a, a real pressing task for us. Um, how do we build those? How do we build those forms? What do they look like? Um, I think there is already some, uh, obviously, levels of discursive resonance and also some, you know, uh, collaboration. But, you know, for example, the global municipalist movement, people are following what's happening in Barcelona. They're looking at the Symbiosis Network in North America. They're looking at Rojava. They're looking at Cooperation Jackson in the South. Um, and so one of the, the initiatives that's been launched out of the Institute in recent years is the Symbiosis Confederation, which is an attempt to build exactly those linkages between movements and groups, at least in North America, that are working within kind of a dual power understanding of um, creating directly democratic institutions, a cooperative economy, and to begin building those linkages so we can coordinate um, across you know, nations and Right now it's in North America, but um, we just had a great week-long summer school with people from India, Tanzania, Tasmania, across Europe, across uh, North America, Brazil, Mexico, and there was a lot of interest in you know building on these. And of course, this is happening in various other places and movements. But um, yeah, I don't think there's a, there's a book can offer some ideas, but there's, it's not a roadmap. Kate, would you want to come in on that? Yeah, just at the beginning, I said that you we we don't need to read Bookchin to start doing municipalism, but once we do, it's really useful to 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 read his work. And one of the reasons is 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 this one because when we won the elections in Barcelona, or even before when we decided to to stand for office, one of the first questions or criticisms that you get is, "But you can't uh, overthrow global capitalism from one town." And, you know, city councils have very limited resources and li- limited powers. And, you know, it's, it's a drop in the ocean. Um, and actually, um, what people say is that you have to take over national government. You know, that's the only way to really make any kind of um, s- sizable, significant change. And actually, the idea of being able to... Uh, win multiple 
towns, cities, regions, and kind of network them together as a potential counterpower to both the state and uh, capitalism, at least um, provides an alternative way of imagining the world because although the nation state is relatively new it's something that it seems it's very difficult to imagine alternative ways of um exercising power or of 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 governing any space that's that's larger than a single city so having that um that idea on in mind and and realizing the importance of 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 those networks and of and and of the potential for for scaling out. I do think there's a tendency to jump to the global very quickly. I mean, actually, what you'd really want is the kind of Kurdish uh, model where you kind of gradually take over a region. Um, because, I mean, I'm sure if managing assemblies in one neighborhood or one city is already super complicated, uh, networking them together and taking joint decisions even at a regional level, I'm sure is mm, 10 times more complicated. So, you know, don't, uh, we don't want to run bef- before we can walk. But like I say, it's really useful to have um, had somebody think through the, the consequences um, of, of that local approach. Okay. I mean, I, I very much agree with Kate. And in a way, it's also about, I mean, a kind of national federations. And I think all I'd add to what Kate says is, I think the importance of what I'd call productive democracy, that is, you know, actually collaboration in producing things, in doing things. So, you know, you've got the networks that have survived around from the social forums have often been networks about actually, you know, doing something, producing new social relations. So the whole issue of, um, refugees, you know, and and you know the organisation of um, squats and uh, then solidarity with squats, like you know the the um, I can't remember what it was called the the um, the place in Athens that was an amazing kind of alternative space for refugees, but it, it depended on a lot of material support from from Germany in particular, <clears throat> and then. You've got networks around, at least at a national level in the UK, you've got networks around um, local energy production, sort of municipal energy, and they're actually materially helping each other. And in Latin America, less so now because of the sort of move away from the left, but there were a lot of what they call public-public partnerships around water, uh, the, the running of municipal water system. One topic that also is, of course, very current or very urgent has always been very urgent of course and um that relates to now the issue uh, raised by the black lives matter and the question of of racism and uh, it kind of struck uh ross and me when reading bookchin's work that um bookchin apparently has a great hope uh, or great optimism about the capacity of of reasoning you know? um uh, looking at one of the uh, chapters in in this book, uh, the next revolution is called "Cities: The Unfolding of Reason in History." So, given this, uh, I mean, first of all, is 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 that uh, a true um, way of uh, framing this? Uh, the, 
and great optimism in reason, which obviously is not shared by many other um, philosophers or, or uh, social theorists and so forth who, who are much more skeptical about the capacity of reason. And, and then, of course, specifically the question, how, how would this reason or the this reasoning capacity be be capable of of combating uh, uh, racism or, or or other forms of social division, division sexism, ableism. A great question. So he was always very clear that decentralization and even direct democracy alone weren't magic bullets; that each alone could be insufficient. On page 74, he says, at the risk of seeming contrary, I feel obliged to emphasize that decentralization, localism, self-sufficiency, and even confederation, each taken singly, do not constitute a guarantee that we will achieve a rational or ecological society. In fact, all of them have at one time or another supported parochial communities, oligarchies, and even despotic regimes. Clearly, institutional changes don't occur in a social va vacuum, nor do they guarantee blah, 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 all these good things. But libertarian municipalism is premised on the struggle to achieve a rational and ecological society, a struggle that depends on education and organization. So what does that mean concretely in terms of addressing racism and sexism? Um, I think um, rather than kind of focusing on just like idealists changing ideas, although that's there, he really stressed actually confederation as an anti-racist and anti-parochial praxis that political and economic interdependence um, creates these actual ties of engaging with other communities, other groups, and creates, you know, concrete shared needs and demystifies, you know, difference. Um, this was always tied to, you know, his, his love for the Greek pedia concept of, of, of public education through public deliberation. So he, he definitely had a, um, we could say like a, a quasi Habermasian streak there, but understood this in terms of actual political struggle. And so, um, this was, and just to go back to the role of cities, I, I don't know if that was like a naive view of city, but, but rather a historical one in identifying cities as a material locus for breaking down these parochial ties of blood and tribe, increased freedom that came from anonymity, exposure to difference and social intermingling and pot new potentialities for freedom. It wasn't to say this is a teleology, this has to happen, but there was an important like material and spatial place um, that, you know, really was kind of historically novel. So this is, it's not an accident, I guess, that he, he focuses on that. Um, and he, I mean, just one more quote, he says, do these interdependencies and majority decisions guarantee that a majority decision will be a correct one? Certainly not. But our chance for a rational and ecological society are much better in this approach than in those that ride on centralized entities and bureaucratic apparatuses. Can I agree? I, can I say something? Sure, Hillary, go I, ahead. Okay, so I agree very much with um, Blair, and I, I would, I mean, maybe not qualify, but sort of just ask what's included in the rational. I mean, sometimes the rational is is counterposed to the emotional or to the the tacit, you know. So um, I think it's important to to recognise the importance of experience. So I mean, if you think about the women's movement. Um, the way we developed many of our ideas, uh, which, you know, were, I mean, I'd say, you know, they were rational, they were the basis of new institutions, but they came out of what we called consciousness raising groups, which is where women came together and they exchanged experiences. And, you know, often 
they were quite emotional because the experiences had produced emotions and remembering them was emotional. And But out of that came a sort of sharing of what what people call tacit knowledge, you know, things that you can't always say, but you know, and that sharing that kind of produced a kind of ability to articulate and then to kind of turn that tacit knowledge into uh, knowledge that was the basis of new institutions like rape crisis centres, new strategies towards healthcare. Obviously, the legacy of Paolo Freire uh, is important and maybe needs to combine with the legacy of, of Murray, Murray Butchkin. Um, but that idea of a form of education that builds on on people's existing capacity. I mean, I do agree with Kate that the left, I mean, it's a bit implicit in Lenin, that sort of vanguard notion that, you know, that there needs to be a level of sort of theoretical intervention from the outside rather than, um, you know, a, 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 a sort of spirit of inquiry and, and investigation. I mean, you know, the, there was a good tradition in the Italian left of inquiry um, and, and, and sharing of experience. So it's not, it's not absent from the left, but it's, not, it's more dominant in social movement thinking, including in the outer globalization movement. Um, than in sort of the traditional organisations of the left that tended to to make rational um, a rather narrow definition that that assumed theory was you know the the prime moment in the production of knowledge. Yeah, I, I completely agree with uh, Hillary there, and it's something that um, has always grated slightly with me with with Bookchin is is the rational. Uh, idea and I mean maybe maybe I'm not understanding it exactly the way he meant it but I do think that this idea that rational thought is superior to other forms of of knowledge uh is dangerous because it's not it's not the same a politics that's driven by love to one that's driven by envy um and terrible things have been done in the name of supposed rationality um but on on the issue of racism and sexism, I think um, there's also something that that we have to be aware of, which is that if we open up um, participatory spaces and and popular assemblies, um, that initially they're going to reproduce the social hierarchies of society, and actually, like easier than curing everyone of of sexism and racism um it's it's actually important to have kind of very practical mechanisms in place to ensure that whatever people's prejudices or 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 whatever that um that at least they can be counteracted by um i don't know like one of the things that we do is um we try and have gender equal assemblies and we also try and make sure um, that women speak for the same amount of time as men because we realized after a while that it wasn't enough to have an equal number of both sexes in the room but you actually had to make sure that um, that women spoke as as much of the time as men or having childcare available or um, you know taking into account that um, that, that that different kind of people for whatever reasons for all of their diversity, might find uh, debating 
or um, decision making to be better done in one way or another. So not everyone's comfortable standing up and speaking, doing a speech in front of an assembly of hundreds of people. Some people might want to do smaller groups. Some people feel better expressing their ideas in writing or in other ways. So kind of actually building in structures that allow uh, the diversity of uh, citizens or people or whoever activists to to contribute um, and to try and reduce because all of these um, systems of hierarchy are, are so ingrained in in all of us that unless we take active steps to to deactivate them that they'll be there with us even in radically democratic spaces or especially I'm really happy that you joined us today and took your time so thank you very much thanks you for listening For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.